Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Begins in Numbers 4. There's a lot, a lot of topics covered in this week, which we aren't going to cover all of them, but we're going we're gonna to highlight a few. And we're going to start out here in Numbers 5, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did. So here at the beginning of the portion, God is... Well, okay, if we back up just a little bit, we know that God has given the tabernacle to the children of Israel, and that is the sanctuary where his presence will dwell there in their midst. And then he's also saying that their camp is holy, right? That his presence is dwelling there within their camps. And because of that, they need to carry on a higher degree, or they need to carry a higher degree of holiness as a body, as the whole nation. And that this ritual defilement has to be taken out of the camp such that purity can, can remain and God's presence can dwell in their midst. And, you know, while this is speaking of, you know, okay, when, we, when we're dealing with a leper, right, we've spoken of that in the past and that it's often tied to the spin, or the sin of evil speech, right? And then we get into other ritual contamination with discharges and the contamination of a dead body. But so we have the, a ritual impurity, like that is physical, and then we also have the spirit, the spiritual impurity, right? Both cases are important, and so in just reading this and thinking on it, you know, morality and purity are foundational to creating a space for God's dwelling presence in our midst, right? Whether that's within ourselves or within our community, those are, those are foundations. Uh, righteousness and justice, right, are the, the foundations of God's throne. Morality and purity creates a space for him. And when we continue on here in Numbers 5, the scripture says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. When, when a man or woman commits any of, these sin, any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give it to him who he has wronged. But if the man who has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, besides the ram of atonement, by which atonement is made for him. Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priest, shall be his. So every man's holy gift shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. So when I read this passage, uh, it might be one that I often kind of uh, pass through to get to the bigger portions, you know, of the, of the parasha, right? Because, you know, we've got the, the sota, the, the wife who goes under testing. You have the Nazarite. You have the 
Aaronic benediction. You have the gifts brought by all the tribes. Those are big items, right? And then this is just a few verses here. But these verses stood out uh, primarily because of a commentary that I read or a, a statement from a rabbi named Moshe Feinstein who uh, lived during the 20th century, but he was uh, well, he was a rabbi and he was also uh, considered a posek, which is a person who has the ability to make halakhic rulings for the community. So he was uh, very high standing. And from what I understand, he was kind of the de facto person to set halakhic rulings for uh, North America, right? So anyway, his, his statements on this tie it back, well, his comments on it are that this is all tying back to sins that would have been tied to the guilt offerings that were mentioned back in Leviticus 5. Okay, and the guilt offerings in this case are spoken of specifically with regard to theft. Okay, and so either uh, you've taken something from the Lord that is holy unto Him, or you've withheld something from Him, or you've taken something from uh, your neighbor. And part of the requirements when that theft occurs, when the person becomes aware of it or is found guilty of it, then they have to make restoration. And the scripture says that they shall return a fifth to them. Well, just a little side note, often we think a fifth. Okay, well, that's 20%. But the way that it was understood and practiced is that you would say, okay, what is it that was taken? Well, there's four parts of it. Okay, and so when you add a fifth to it, you're adding a fifth part, which is actually 25% more. Oh, interesting little side note. Uh, but what are we going to get from that? I'm not really sure, but it's interesting. <laughs> so the fifth part, you know, you're actually you're giving some uh, some part back in addition to what was taken. But what what Moshe Feinstein talked about was that there were three stages that were described here in these passages. The first was when someone has uh, stolen from the Lord or from uh, or from a, a, one of the children of Israel. Then he has to make restitution, okay? And then after that, there's another one that says, but if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord, okay? Now, what this is speaking of with the man who has no relative, it's speaking of a proselyte, you know, a Gentile who had become legally Jewish, but didn't have any heirs, because when a proselyte became uh, converted Judaism and became legally Jewish, then all their relatives were essentially cut off, and now their new heritage, their new uh, lineage was with the Lord. So if they didn't have any relatives, like if the proselyte passed on and there were no relatives to give the money to, then the money would be given to the Lord. It wouldn't just be common property. And the last thing goes down to the gifts that are given to the priests, okay? And when it says, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priests, shall be his, shall be the priests. And then it says, so every man's holy gift shall be his, and whatever any man gives to the priest becomes the priests. So it's interesting, right? Because it said that all these gifts shall belong to the priest, but then it makes a statement, every man's gifts that he's designated for the Lord shall belong to him, but then whatever that man gives to the priest becomes the priest. So I'm going to kind of explain that a little bit here. But what, what, what the rabbi was speaking of is he said, the true de definition of stealing 
is that we're forbidden to take anything that God has not given us. Okay, regardless of the circumstances. So he's saying, the first thing is if you've taken from the Lord or from a, a child of Israel, you have to give it back. Even if you think, well, they're so wealthy, they'll never miss it and it'll be inconsequential. Right? The next is, okay, now we're talking about a proselyte, right? Let's say this proselyte is wealthy, but he has no heirs. Well, he can't possibly spend all of his money before he passes on. And after he passes on, no one inherits it. So it's really not going to be a big offense if I take from him, right? Because we can rationalize. Ah, maybe it'd be okay in that instance. And then the last one is someone has separated his tithes and is ready to give them to the Lord. But in this case, he'd be giving it to the priest. The priest cannot go and take it from the person just because he knows it's his. He has to wait for the person to actually give it to him. Okay, that's why even when a person says, okay, I'm going to give this to the Lord, it remains his, and then whatever he, whatever the man gives to the priest, then it becomes the priest's. It's only after he, the person says, okay, here, this is now yours, even though I've dedicated it. The priest could say, well, you've already dedicated it. It's mine. I'm just going to come take it, and we're good, right? No harm, no foul. But, but there is, because now he's deprived the person of being able to give the gift. Does that make sense? Because there was the dedicating it, and then there was the giving it. And so in all these, we could come up with a reason for saying, you know, perhaps it would be okay to deprive another person of what they have under whatever condition. But the real, real truth is that um, no aspect of moral justification allows us to take what is not ours. So that stood out to me this week, right? And it stood, stood out to me because of what we see going on in our country. And what we have going on in our country is there are multiple layers of wrongs and offenses, and it becomes very hard to discern what's really going on. Um, and we have a lot of different voices telling us what to think, how to perceive things, how to act. And going through the week, I, I saw different places saying, okay, well, there are different churches saying, okay, this week we're going we're gonna to teach on racism and we're going to do different things. And I began to think, you know, is there something wrong with me that I haven't sent anything out like that? <laughs> you know, just the aspect of, well, where are we and what are we doing? What are, how do we perceive what's happening here in, in our country. And thinking of even speaking on this is, uh, it's challenging. And part of the reason why it's challenging is because I don't feel like anyone can say anything right. <laughs> Maybe I should stop right there. <laughs> but I... We are a nation divided, even even attacked. Um, we are so divided right now that even people who want to work together can't work together because someone didn't say the right word. <laughs> uh, if you use the word they, you could be insensitive, right? And it's, it's like, uh, that's a real problem. Um, and so may God give me the words to say that will not be offensive, but rather will be uplifting. 
<laughs> and because my desire is to promote justice, to promote healing. And I think it's really important even where the believer stands in all of this, right? Because, what, I mean, we can first just look to what did Yeshua do? He stood with the oppressed and he cared for them and he called them to righteousness and he sought justice for them. And that is what the body is to do. We are to stand with the oppressed, whether the oppressed is minorities, black people, Jewish people, you know, all these, we are to stand with the oppressed. And what does it mean to stand with the oppressed? It does not mean supporting every action of the oppressed people or every belief, but rather supporting their humanity and their just treatment, right? Standing for righteousness. What I really long for is I, I long for a champion, right, to arise. Like I think about Martin Luther King Jr., right? And was he a perfect man? No, he wasn't. But he stood for righteousness and justice, and he was a champion of civil rights. You know, I would love to see one rise like that who is not out for himself, but out for this nation out for his people, right? And to say his people, I don't think that's offensive um, <laughs> to make a distinction, but we are, we are to be champions. of, or We're to be people who stand in the gap for those who are done wrong. Now, what that looks like is going to vary from one person to another. It's not for us to say exactly what everyone else should or shouldn't be doing or be the police of exactly how they're saying things. Instead, we need to be looking for that which is um, unifying and uplifting. And in service or in uh, worship, I was thinking about... Well, I was thinking about a couple different things. A lot of it was about how to actually say things well, but <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, but one of the things that came through my mind was just the desire for righteousness to flow down like waters and or for justice to flow down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And then also for the aspect of, of unity, Proverbs 19.11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. Okay? If we think about that, then as we're hearing others speak, okay, how, what's our response? Is it, is it impatient or is it patient? And is the impatience born out of wisdom or is the patience born out of wisdom? And then, if we're offended by a wording or something that's off, instead of focusing in on the offense, Let's renew our minds and think it's to my glory to overlook the offense and seek out the unity. And then through walking out in peace and unity, we can begin to speak the same language rather than, can I shame you into saying the words I want you to say or twist you into doing it? Um, now, when I'm, when I'm saying this, I really don't, I, I don't intend to talk about this the whole time because... I feel like in a lot of ways I'm, I'm preaching to the choir because 
I look around and I don't see racism in our community. You know, I see people who are pursuing righteousness and justice and we have compassion and care for one another. And I give glory to the Lord for that. But I also think it's worthwhile in bringing these things up because because of what we see going on. And, and we really are at a crisis in this nation. The, the nation needs healing and it needs people who will rise up for the cause of justice, who will intercede in prayer, you know, um, because we don't want to be those who just sit in silence when we see unrighteousness taking place. Right. We want to stand as the Lord is leading us to stand and to encourage others to do the same. And we also need to recognize that there's, there are forces at work that are actually within the riots and protesting that's going on that are actually not even aligned with the cause of justice for black people. But they're doing it under the guise and hiding under that. And in doing so, they're actually stealing much of what righteousness could be coming forth from the righteous protests that are taking place. That is theft, okay? Plain and simple. Um, because when, when you look around and you see peaceful protests, that's good, right? But the rioting and the looting, there's no way we can condone that, right? That is unrighteousness, and we can't let the means justify the end. Rather, we pursue righteousness through righteousness. We pursue justice through justice. Um, and so within it, I think we just, we have to be discerning and say, where it, where is the righteous cause? Let me support that. Where is the unrighteous cause? And we will say that is wrong. Does that make sense? Um, because you can stand, you can stand with a group of people, even though you may have to say that a group of people is acting wrong. Does that make sense? Like, even within the body, if someone is, is acting in sin, you would still speak out against their sin, but you would not be against the person. Does that make sense? In fact, by speaking out against the sin, you're actually standing with them to help them to walk uprightly. So anyway, I guess in saying all that, it is my desire to see justice and equity for the black community. And I want to see that come to fruition and be established. And I, I just see so many aspects where, where it's, it's being subverted. And that, to me, that is uh, upsetting. Now, if you've been around long, with us, you know that I really like the movie Woodlawn. <laughs> some people are laughing because I've mentioned Woodlawn more than some books of the Bible. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so this this movie, I highly recommend you watching it. Okay, it's a it's a story about a football team back in 1973, about what God did in the midst of this community in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Birmingham was at one time considered the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. It was known as Bombingham, I think. But it was it was a place of great strife 
in crisis. And what happened um, is in a school where they had forced integration, there were, there were all kinds of fights and it was a bad, almost failed integration, but God showed up and he made a difference. Now in this story, you know, I really like watching it with my family because it introduces the whole aspect of racism and lets us talk about those aspects of injustice and it's really good. But also, you know, I look at what the condition was 50 years ago and it's far worse than it is today. We, we, are, we are in a better place than we were 50 years ago, but you wouldn't know that if you just listened to the news, right? Um, and rather than, you know, looking at the progress that's been made and trying to move that forward, it seems as though the agenda is to increase the divide and prevent healing from taking place. But the, the, the thing about Woodlawn is it shows what God does when we listen to and apply his word and allow him to renew us and to bring a unity even when there's been a divide. And it, with this change that takes place by the spirit, that we change within and we overflow outward by our actions. And one of the things they say in the movie is they said, this is what happens when God shows up. Right? And it's, it's amazing the transformation that takes place in that, not just in that school, but in the other schools. And it's, it's fantastic. But there's one part where, um, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but there's this, there's a, a running back. Uh, he's, he's a black man. And he is, has this incredible talent. And initially, you know, the school uh, isn't, isn't going to play the black people because, well, we, we play the whites. And now we've been forced to be integrated. But there's a missionary that, that comes in to, to work with, with the school. And he goes and he's talking to this young black man. And he makes a statement. He says, when you play for yourself, it's Tony. He says, Tony, when you play for yourself, you can be great. But when you play for something greater than yourself, that's when something extraordinary can happen. God has a purpose for all of us, and it's not insignificant. God wants you to be a superstar. And now the young man, you know, hears it and he's like, whatever. There's no such thing as a black superstar, you know. But this guy was, was speaking truth into him, you know, that when you play for something greater than yourself, something extraordinary can happen, and that God's purpose for us has a purpose for us all, and it's not insignificant, right? Now, God can set you apart, and you can also set yourself apart unto these causes and these purposes. And then even if God sets you apart, you still then have an act, active participation to play out in that to carry out what he set you to do. So speaking of God setting us apart ties into this Nazarite vow. Okay, so we're going to go back to our portion now. Okay, now we had a gospel reading from Luke 1, and it speaks of one Nazarite call. 
Okay, so in Luke 1, verse 11 through 20, we read, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fell, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did, did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So God had set apart John the Immerser, right, from the womb, from actually before the womb, right? Because the angel said he will conceive or his, that Zechariah's wife will conceive and bear a son and speaks of what his son is called to and why this calling of holiness is important for his life. Okay? John didn't have just... Oh, I, I didn't want to say that. I'm going to hold back because John had an extra special calling on his life above and beyond what, uh, what others may have. Right? Not that no one else can have that calling, but he had a special calling to go and prepare the way for the Lord. And because of that, he was to be set apart. He was already a priest, actually. You know, Zechariah being a priest and his wife Elizabeth also. Um, I, know it was a, I know of the Levites, but I, I believe descended from, from Cohen's as well. But <clears throat> So he was already a priest, but then he also had this additional calling as a Nazarite to prepare the way for the Lord. A special calling and a special holiness of his lifestyle. Okay, so then another one, another calling from the womb, is Samson from Judges. In our Haftarah reading this week, we read from the book of Judges. I'm going to read two sections here. There was a certain man of... There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean or prohibited. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now note the distinction here, of course, that she was told not to do any of these things even before her son came into the womb because he was set apart from the beginning, such that even what passed through her to him mattered. And when you think about that, I mean, this isn't the main point, but look at the importance of what we're to do such that we birth things in accordance with God's plan, right? Those who parent the calling have a responsibility as well in bringing forth 
in preparing their child and leading them in, in a way for God's work to be carried out in them, whether it's a Nazarite vow or whether it's righteous, righteous and upright living, you know, it's the same thing, right? And it, it begins from before birth and carries on after birth all the way through. But so she's, so she's called to this and she goes and tells her husband. And so picking back up in verse eight, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. I love that he sought wisdom, right? He sought wisdom and God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? I've seen others you know, say, like, what, what shall be his uh, behavior and what shall be his conduct, right? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Another, another issue here, right? He says, we've got this special child coming to us. What are we to do? How are we to instruct this child? What shall be his conduct? What shall be his behavior? And, uh, you know, the angel doesn't actually... Tell him exactly what's going to happen or how it's all going to play out. But instead, he said, be faithful with, you, with what you've been given and be a steward according to what I've revealed to you at this point and how to raise up this child. Right. And so the angel, of course, giving the instructions of what would be the Nazarite vow. And we know the stories of what Samson did working as a deliverer for the children of Israel and delivering them from the Philistines. And that when he walked faithfully in his calling, God's blessing was upon him to go and to carry out that deliverance. And when he strayed, then uh, he suffered consequences, right? Um, but ultimately, his was a story of repentance, too. Even after he had strayed, he repented. And the calling that was on his life was not forfeit. It was reestablished. And he prevailed in the end. God worked through him to, to carry out his purposes. Now, you know, I mentioned before, God can set you apart or you can set apart yourself. Now, in these cases that we both we just read, God had set apart John. And he had set apart Samson for his special purposes. But what if you think God didn't set you apart? You know, what do you do? You know? Do you, do you embrace that, or do you realize that, just as uh, the Woodlawn advice said, God has a purpose for us, and it's not insignificant. God wants you to be a superstar, right? So God gives us opportunities to walk with him, to carry out his ways, to pursue his righteousness, to seek him, to be a light. And he, he gives us that just through the invitation to come be with him and to be faithful to his covenant and walk with him, right? In that, God has significant, significant plans for us that he can move in us and through us, right? 
And he also gives us the opportunity to elevate ourselves and to come closer, to set ourselves apart. I mean, it's through how we carry out Torah, how we remain faithful, how we love our neighbor and love him. And then it also is presented here in number six, where we read about the Nazarite. So we're going to read a few verses here. In Numbers 6, starting in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat any grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day. And separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation, and bring a male lamb, a year old, for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void, because his separation was defiled. And this is the law for the Nazarite, when the time of his separation has been completed. He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord. One male lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a sin offering. And one ram without blemish is a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord, and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled, and one unleavened loaf out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, but if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow as he can afford, in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. Okay, so within that, there's a great deal of detail in what happens with the Nazarite and, and the time of his vow. Some of the things that stand out are that even the restrictions placed on the Nazarite go beyond the restrictions placed on the priest. Because the priest is to come near the dead body of his relative to care for it. 
right? But in this case, the the Nazarite is not. And what's what God has opened the door here to is for a person who is not of the priestly line to set themselves apart in a way that it can be likened unto the priesthood, right? And in doing that, they have made themselves they have taken on a vow of, of being holy to the Lord for a set period of time. And this period of time is a minimum of 30 days. Okay. And it, but it can have, it can be limitless in time, but the minimum was to, to say 30 days or longer. And during that time, they can't cut their hair. They can't have anything that is a great product. And then they can't be contaminated by a corpse. And within this, you know, what, what does the Nazarite do during that time? You know, what, what are the special things that they do? I, I don't actually know the answer. But it's a, it's a time of really saying, I'm going to step away from the legitimate pleasures of the world such that I can dedicate myself wholly unto the Lord to be a vessel that he works through, that, that hears his voice, that goes and does does his will. And... In one commentary, uh, I read that the sages said, well, why did the command of the Nazarite come right at this spot in the Torah? It follows right on the heel, right on the heels of speaking of a, of a faithless bride. And so the sages in, in the Talmud, I believe, uh, speak of saying, well, when one sees great unrighteousness taking place, the response is to, seek the Lord in greater righteousness. And so when one would see a marriage defiled, they would then take on a Nazarite vow, which is really an interesting thought because you think about uh, scales of justice, right? And you see unrighteousness increasing in the world. And so then you counterbalance it with the righteous rising up and taking their place to act as intercessors and to be agents of change in the world rather than letting the tide of darkness overtake the world. Right. And this is part of what we're called to do. Part of our purpose is being agents of righteousness and light in the world. Now, we, we listed a, a series of offerings that are made at the end of the Nazarite vow. These Nazarite vows, they were costly, right? They were, they were expensive. If you look back and say, well, what all, what all was offered? You had a, a, a sheep, a ewe, which is also a sheep. And then you have a, a ram and then you had your flower offerings. And if your period was violated, you also were bringing uh, two turtle doves and uh, bringing them, which those are, of course, less expensive. But those were the minimum offerings to make, and people would often give offerings above and beyond with the elevation offerings and the Thanksgiving offerings, or the peace offerings. So these were expensive, both in the aspect of self-sacrifice, of what you were going to be doing in your physical person, and also of what you would be giving unto the Lord. So these were, these were expensive, but these were, were actually popular. Even in the in the Second Temple period, even after the time of Yeshua, in Acts eighteen, the scripture says, "After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. 
and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, I don't know that word, censure or something. He had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Right? So what is being stated here is that uh, he had been under a Nazarite vow. And carrying on in Acts 21, when Paul had come to Jerusalem, and there were rumors about him that he was no longer walking according to Torah, and that he was teaching others to also turn away from Torah, the leaders of the community said, well, Paul, you need to demonstrate and prove to everybody that you walk faithfully within Torah. And so do this what we tell you that here in Acts 21, 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in accordance with the law or the Torah. Right? So this here is speaking of believers in Yeshua being under Nazarite vows and bringing the prescribed offerings at the temple. The prescribed offerings, which included elevation offerings, sin offering, um, peace offerings, and the, the bread offerings. Right? So all these were taking place. And in addition... It's also thought that it's possible that Yeshua took on a Nazarite vow. In Matthew 26, 29, during his Seder, he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of, this, of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, it's interesting. I would read that and just think, okay, well, he's saying that he's not going to be able to keep the Seder anymore because he's about to pass on and uh, be raised and... He'll come back and do this again. But uh, within the Talmud, it speaks of you, you don't have to say, I'm going to take on a Nazarite vow to be taking on a Nazarite vow. There are many ways to declare it. Some of the ways to declare it would be say, I will not cut my hair, or um, I will not eat grapes, or I will be like Samson. And those statements were understood to be binding of taking on a Nazarite vow. So when Yeshua makes a statement, I will not eat or I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, it's possible that he may have actually been making the statement of I'm taking I'm entering into this Nazarite vow. And so perhaps that uh, inspired the apostles, or perhaps they did it simply because it was their desire to draw close to the Lord to an even greater degree. But um, regardless, this was still taking place in the time of Yeshua, and, and it is a way of saying, okay, Lord, I want to make myself a vessel such that you can move fully through me, laying aside uh, one's own desires. And again, for the purpose of seeing God manifest in us, and in, the, and in the world around us. Okay, so, you know, we, we do have, as believers in Yeshua, we have a special calling in the world as those who are to be ministers of reconciliation, right? That's part of the ministry that we've been given. And that ministry of reconciliation has multiple levels to it. 
right? It has to do, especially within Messianic Judaism, has to do with reconciliation between uh, Jewish people and Yeshua, between Christians and Jews, right? Between the nations and Christians and Jews, right? <laughs> There's between between blacks and whites, right? Between other minorities and and those who are the majority, right? Because uh, racism exists in really all areas of the world, right? Even amongst people who should be brothers and sisters. So we have a special calling, and it's up to us to walk in that. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to go and take a Nazarite vow, but you certainly could, right? Now, there's no temple where you can bring these offerings, but there are still Nazarite, Nazarite vows that can be taken in a, in a setting apart of denying oneself, of saying, okay, I'm not going to partake of alcohol or anything of the grapevine. I'm not going to cut my hair. And it's not just about doing those things, but rather those are avenues by which we create space for God's dwelling presence in our midst. Right, we do. We but we make space for God's dwelling presence in our midst in other ways too. So again, I'm not saying this is the thing everybody needs to go out and do, but there is there is a benefit to it. And you know, one other thing that I feel like is connected to this, of course, and it's the the blessing, the priestly blessing that was given. And also in number six. And why do I say it's connected? Well, I'll, I'll read something quickly. <laughs> so in number six, 22, Scripture says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, Thus you are, ble- are to bless the children of Israel by saying to them, Adonai bless you and keep you. Adonai make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Adonai, turn his face toward you and grant you shalom. In this way, they are to place my name over the children of Israel, and so I will bless them. So in this, God has instructed the sons of Aaron to bless the children of Israel by placing God's name upon them. And this placing of God's name upon them... It's significant because God is pouring out multiple layers of blessing upon his children. And without God's blessing, how do we walk and carry out that which he's called us to do? We have to have his presence. We have to have his strength and his provision for us to be able to carry out what he's saying or what he's calling us to do to, to carry out this special calling. And so within this, there are three passages. Yes. May Shem bless you and keep you. And within this one, there's blessings of prosperity within regard to material matters. And there's a safeguarding that allows you to keep the blessing. Right? And this safeguarding is something that shields you from attack and also helps you to stand so that you don't fall because of the good blessing that God's given you. Right, but you keep your eyes focused on him. And by God blessing us and giving us our material needs, then we can pursue the things of God. Right? There's a saying in uh, saying of the fathers that says, If there is no flower, there is no Torah. 
right? So we rely on God's provision such that we can then walk in the things that he's given us to do. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. And then may the Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. With this aspect, with causing his face to shine on you, to give you the light of the Torah, right? Because the commandment is a candle and the Torah is a light. And that he makes us able to perceive the wisdom of the Torah. And then he gives us grace by causing us to find favor both with him and with, um, and with others. So he gives us this, he causes his light to shine on us through his Torah, through his commandment. And he gives us favor with others as well. And then may the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. So with the Lord lifting up his countenance to you, that's being merciful unto you, right? Because God acts in patience towards us. For even when we sin, he's compassionate. He suppresses his anger. He's patient because he, you know, as we said earlier, you know, uh, wisdom brings forth patience. Well, he is, uh, he is all wisdom, and he acts with us in accordance with his patience, giving us mercy, and then establishing peace for us. Because peace is what enables all of this to move forward in its fullness, right? For the blessings to be fully realized, for the light of Torah to be fully realized. Peace when you enter, peace when you leave, and peaceful relations with everyone is what the Midrash says on this. And... No, so what is this this peace though? When when the, when the scripture speaks of shalom, when it speaks of peace, it's talking about the absence of chaos. Physically, spiritually, it is a place. You know, if you, if you think about that, where there's an absent absence of chaos, there's there's a, a presence of the Lord, and there's a unity that comes in that. Right. What we see today is we see a lot of chaos. We have to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord to know that his presence is still here in the midst of the chaos. And we can't allow ourselves to be dragged down by the chaos, right? But rather we are to be inheritors of that peace that he gives and the blessing that he gives. And even in the midst of seeing unrighteousness, the idea is not to become angry unto sin, but to have a righteous indignation that is able to stand and call forth what is true, what is just, right? And it may not always come easily, but that is our place to be ones who can minister peace and spread peace because we've been given peace. And in, in wrapping that thought up and, and this whole thing is we can't lose sight of the fact that God has a purpose for us and it's not insignificant. And he really does want us to be a superstar. Right, And being that superstar is one who shines his light each and every day, who sees that we do have a place even when uh, and a voice even when it may seem like we don't. The, ask, the thing is to put ourselves in a position where we can be used by the Lord and be sensitive to what he's saying so that we can go and do and act according to what his desire is because that's when it will be blessed. That's when it will be more fruitful than if we just decide, okay, we're going to go 
uh, go our own way. And I believe that God has a purpose and intention for our nation. And that that purpose is not insignificant. Right? And when we see all this going on, we can look at it and say, well, this is uh, the destruction that America has warranted, right? Which some say, right? Or we can look at this and say, this is the refining fire that will actually birth forth a nation that can carry forth God's intention, right? What perspective are we going to buy into? Are we going to buy into the doom and gloom? Or are we going to buy, got, buy into the hope and the purpose of restoration that can be established when God's people rise up and seek his face? So that's what our call is, to rise up, to seek his face, to be ministers of reconciliation and those who speak light and truth and life such that we may see the glory of the Lord revealed in our midst. Amen. Uh, does anybody else have anything that you wanted to share or thoughts? always called a Nazarite even after you finished the time of your vow and all that? That's, that's a great question. So the question was, once you've done a Nazarite vow, do you remain a Nazarite or are you not any longer? So according to the scripture, one remains a Nazarite after the completion of the Nazarite vow. And it comes from number six, uh, verse 20 where it's at the end of after bringing all of the offerings and the concluding of the vow. The scripture says that the priest shall wave them as a wave service before the Lord. It shall be holy for the, the, the priest, aside from the breast of the waving and the thigh of the raising up. Afterward, the Nazarite may drink wine. Yeah, that, that statement made me question it because they were still calling them a Nazarite, but then saying they could drink wine. But does that mean they can also... Well, they already shaved their head for the thing, but they can then go near dead bodies and all that. Yes. So even though they're still called a Nazarite after the completion of the vow, the prohibitions that a Nazarite took on during the period of the vow no longer apply. They can then uh, eat of the fruit of the vine, uh, drink wine. They can um, cut their hair and they can uh, attend, uh, attend the dead. And so... The thing is, what the sages say is that the Nazarite retains his holy status as long as he continues to walk in righteousness. But when, if they were to stray and go away from walking in righteousness, then they would cease to be a Nazarite. But they would be called a Nazarite from that point on, even though they weren't under the vow. then they've lost that status of holiness that they were elevated to during the Nazarite vow. Yeah. Good question. And actually, that's, that's, a, that's an important part, right? Because the reward is not just for that, that time period. It's uh, as long as they continue to walk in faithfulness under the Lord and retained uh, their righteousness before Him. Any other questions or Thoughts, comments? Another question would be why would a, why, why would a person take an answer? Okay, 
Good question, Diego. So why would a person take a Nazarite vow? Okay, so do you have an answer? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I, I had to ask, right? Because it's like, well, I can tell you uh, kind of some thoughts on it, but I can't tell you, hey, this is what uh, the sages said about why exactly one would take it other than so the thoughts, and then I'll be happy to have you jump in, is that there was a desire on the part of the person to set themselves apart, to draw closer to the Lord. Um, Lou Engle teaches a lot, if you ever heard of Lou Engle, he, he teaches a lot about uh, the Nazarites and the Nazarite vows and setting apart. And one thing that he stresses a lot is like, well, when... Uh, when when one desires to take a Nazarite vow unto the Lord, to set themselves apart, to willingly lay down themselves and their own desires such that they can be a more open vessel, that would be a case of taking on the Nazarite vow. And when when this actually, in the Hebrew, when it says that they shall dissociate themselves it's the root word is pele, which is wonder. Like it's it's about this thing being wondrous or extraordinary. This isn't a common thing that one would set themselves apart in that. And a number of years ago, I uh, I did actually do a a Nazarite vow. And there's no temple, of course, but I was I felt like I was compelled to do it where it had been something that had been on my mind and I'd been thinking about for a long time, uh, but I just wasn't moving forward in it. And then one day when I was working on the lawn, I just was overwhelmed with like the Lord calling me to do it. And I, I just, it was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And I was just weeping and I was like, I'm, and I wasn't weeping because I wasn't going <laughs> to, I wouldn't be able to drink wine. No, I wasn't weeping because of that. I was weeping because I was just overcome by the Lord and like knowing that this is what he was saying to do. Right. And so I submitted and then uh, took that took that time period and just that's when I actually figured out I had curly hair. Um, <laughs> you keep it short enough, you don't know. He goes long. You're like, wait a second. There's something different. But anyway. <laughs> Um, so, but anyway, so for, in, in my case, it was a desire to just press into the Lord and to allow him to move and do whatever it was that he wanted within him. But did you have, uh, additional thoughts of one, why one might take a vow? Um, that's one to share with Also, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that the status of that uh, person who takes Nazarene vow comes to the extent of a, of a priest, or comes to the same level of a priest, which equals closer relationship with, with God, right? And, uh, and while, while the Nazarene vow is, is, is making prohibition upon himself, of things that are actually permissible, uh, we can think of that as today. What, what, what is there in our life that we feel 100% comfortable in 
know that it is permissible for us to do, yet at the same time, it's it's uh, it's, it's in the way of, of us attaining a more deeper relationship with the world. Uh, so it's this idea that looking at things that we that consumes us the most and saying, yes, this is this is okay for me to do, but it is causing a distraction in my life in the way that it doesn't allow me to attain this level of relationship. So nothing about so wine and all those things is associated with pressure. Wine and grape juice are all that is associated with pressure. All throughout the Torah we are commanded to drink wine <laughs> and to rejoice and all most of the houses is involved with wine. Uh, so this idea that that Pleasure is good and it is permissible, but maybe I'm taking it too far in that area that is causing a, you know, kind of pushing me back instead of taking it closer from Yeah, Diego, that's really good. In fact, uh, I was sitting here going, ah, I wish you had a microphone on you so that everybody online could have heard. So I'm going to try to kind of recap very briefly what you just said. Um, so Dio was commenting on how the, the Nazarite is denying himself of things and these, like it's, it's, uh, taking on more similar prohibitions that a priest would have. And the priest is relationally or like even positionally closer to the Lord than the other Israelites. And so now this Nazarite is seeking to draw, draw near and that part of the thing here is that the Nazarite is prohibiting himself from taking things that are permitted, right? And that by doing that, even though those things may be good, by denying himself of those things, that he can be drawing closer. And so it would, it would benefit us to look and say, well, what are things that are permitted to us? but that may actually be causing a hindrance for us to move into closer relationship with the Lord. And, uh, and then I know I didn't do justice to what Diego fully said there, but um, even in areas where the Torah has told us that things are good, like drinking wine and rejoicing unto the Lord, those are good things. But there's a time when those might actually hold us back from drawing close to the Lord. And so um, we have to be discerning and say, okay, Lord, what do you, what do you, what do you say about this? And what should I walk in, in this day, in this moment? Yeah. Well, like what Rashi says, separating us from the environment of temptation. Separate us from the environment of temptation. Yeah, absolutely. That is good. Yeah, it's, it is, it's a separating oneself from Worldly things that can be good, but also could lead to temptation. Yeah. And the scripture also calls us to be um, priests of the God. Mm-hmm. So um, even if, whether it's, you know, the Levites, we're supposed to be holy and acceptable and righteous. And it's our desire, it's not just to, um, to read it, but also to practice it. It's an end, it's, it's a heart thing. Mm-hmm. So we can say that we want to do this. We always lose our way sometimes. 
but it's um, everything comes from the heart. Mm-hmm. So when, even though God says this is what you should do if you want to become an athlete, you know, follow the vows. If it's done because I, this sounds good, but it's it's something it has to be led by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That you know that this is what God is leading. No, you just can't say, okay, I'm going to do this. But it has to be led by the Spirit of God in order to do it. Because it's a, it's really a hard thing to do. But, yeah. It, but it makes it easy when you're led by the Holy Spirit. And I got to do it. Yes. Yeah. And, um, just to repeat, sorry. I, we're, we're repeating for everyone who's at home. But, you know, what Anjanette was talking about was this is really to come forth from a desire uh, to... It's, it's, really, it's a heart condition that, that springs forth this desire to draw near to the Lord, right? And that's where this needs to originate from as opposed to just saying, okay, I can do that. Let me go and not cut my hair and not do this thing. But rather it's... It really does. It stems from a desire that comes from within, and then then we're empowered by the Spirit to walk in it. Yeah. Anybody else? All right. Well, praise God. Um, thank you. Uh, let's let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise. <laughs> Oh, Lord, we ask you to stir within our hearts, Lord. Give us revelation of who you've called us to be, of who you've made us to be. Lord, give us uh, discernment to know what you've laid before us. Help us to hear your voice, to lay aside every encumbrance that would uh, cause us to stumble or cause us not to be able to move forward in your plans. Lord, I ask that you would... Strengthen us as agents of reconciliation, of ministers of reconciliation. Oh, we ask that you would bring healing to our land. Lord, that you would bring a spirit of unity and repentance across this land. That your light would shine in the darkness. That your bride would rise up to the calling that she has, Lord, to walk in your righteousness and in your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that... You are with us, you are in this with us, and that your plans and intentions for us and for this nation are for good. And we agree with you and, uh, and call that forth in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.